Let's jump into Romans chapter 8. I'm so glad we get here. This is our 18th week, I believe, in Romans. And Romans chapter 8 is where the pivot begins. Um, it begins like this. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And as you know, um, many of you have translations or you've been familiar with this translation that says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, here's the thing. So, therefore, they both mean the same thing. It is a connecting piece to what's gone before. But this therefore, this so, is not simply to Romans 7 that we just studied. It is actually to the whole argument that Paul has been making from the beginning of the book of Romans all the way till now. As we talked about last week, there are some hills and valleys in the argument that Paul has been making in the book of Romans. And when he gets to Romans 8, he begins to pivot and begins to talk about something a little bit different. And this is the climax. And like that last song, that So Will I, that just seems to build and build and build, that's what is happening in chapter 8. Paul is just beginning to build and build and build the capstone of his argument, which is really, really exciting. And he begins with the pivot of even, all, even with all that, even because of all of this and because of all of that, now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And because, in verse 2, and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And this is Exodus language, friends. This is language of freedom. This is liberation language that says you are no longer bound to that because God has bound you to something else. Romans 7, remember, didn't speak of the Holy Spirit. But now Paul is doubling down on what the Holy Spirit does. And what he basically means to make the argument that says this, we never overcome by ourselves. Huh, that's weird. I thought I would get an amen for that, but I guess not. Um, we never overcome by ourselves. Yeah, now you just have to do it, so it's not as special. Right? But the truth is, we don't overcome by ourselves. And this is what he was saying. Those things that I want to do, those aren't the things I do. It's the things I don't want to do. Those are the things that I keep on doing. And then he says, what? Now there's no condemnation no matter what, partly because we have been freed by the power of the life-giving Spirit. God does this in us through the power of the Spirit. And this is a very Trinitarian argument he's making, which we'll talk about in just a second. Romans 8.3 says this, this, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. Remember, the law is impotent to save us from sin. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son a sacrifice for our sins. Now, this is a lot. This is a big sentence. He wrote a lot. This is like a guiding paragraph. So let's ask the question, what did God do? What did he do? And this is a movement in five parts. There's five things that God did. The first First one is he sent his son. He sent his son. And this shows sacrificial love. This also implies his preexistence, which is something that John, um, John writes in his gospel as well. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So what this does is this makes us realize that Jesus was in heaven. He did not just, be get, he did not just become created and was a created being, but he preexisted in heaven. That's important because Jesus was 100% divine and 100% human. And we'll get to that in a second. 
But <clears throat> every time I think about this, especially this has become real in the last three weeks. Like I told you before, my daughter got her driver's license and school started for them this week. And so on Tuesday, she grabs her brothers, puts them in the car, she gets in the car, my wife and I are standing in the driveway and she drives away. And for a moment, I was like, everything I care about in the world is in that car. Like, can you, I looked at my wife, I said, everything we love is right there. It's going away. Man, I hope she knows how to drive. <laughs> like, that was my fear. And she's great. She's great. She really is. Um, she's been phenomenal. But, but I think about that when I think about God sending his son, right? I think about that emotion, that feeling. If you're a parent, you know what it is. They all get on a plane or they get in a car or they go to college. Ah, man, that shows sacrificial love. Because Jesus existed in heaven before he came down. And through that sending, that son became incarnate, right? In the flesh. He became particular. He became in the likeness of sinful man. I'm going to have to get a, a drink of water here. My throat is fighting with me today. Um, but in the likeness of sinful man. Now, this is what's interesting. That term, we said, so his body looks like ours in the NLT. In the NIV, it says in the likeness of sinful man. The reason why it says it that way is because, remember, Paul has made the argument that Jesus is the new Adam, and so that's the nature that he has, and this is a nature of Christ question, which has been kind of hotly debated over the years, but his nature is that of Adam, and, but he is 100% human like us. So that's why he says just a little bit of a qualifier, it, you know, he, he, he in the likeness of sinful man, but his nature was not at that point sinful. This is important. Remember being the new Adam. But, but the thing was, you see, Jesus came down and became incarnate so that he might beat sin on its home turf. Now, I used to play basketball in high school, and, and, and we loved home games, right? Because your crowd was yours, and they, they wanted you to win, right? You made a basket. Everyone's like, Tim, yeah, woo-hoo. That was great. That was great to hear. But you know what was even sweeter than winning at home? Was winning in somebody else's backyard. When they hated you, they didn't want you to be there right? They didn't like your team. And when you could beat the other team on its home turf, then it was sweet. This is what God did. When Jesus came down incarnate in the flesh, sarks is what it's called. When he became a human, he comes down to beat sin on its home turf. There's no home court advantage for Satan on this earth because God has been here. I'm going to take a sip real quick. Excuse me. So the son came down and became incarnate. But, which leads us to number three, the son was a sin offering, right? Because there's a sacrificial system that we have to acknowledge. This is clearly referencing the Old Testament. And he's speaking specifically of the sin situation that he was talking about in Romans, right? These sins that we do that we don't want to do, even sins that at time we don't mean to do, we don't even know that we're doing, hamartia, missing the mark. There needs to be a sacrifice, a sin offering for those things. And Jesus was that sin offering, as it said in, I believe it was verse three, right? And in doing that, by giving Christ as a sin offering, giving his son particularly as a sin offering, God declared an end to sin's control over us. The sacrifice rendered sin impotent to condemn us. Remember how the law was impotent to save us? Well, now sin is impotent to condemn us. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, you're getting there. 
Moving a little slow this morning. Okay, so this is really good news. This is really good news. This is the thing that, like, this is the reason why we're Christians, right? This is the thing, the salvation, our soteriology, our, well, our theology of salvation, how, how God has done it all. This is the stuff. This is the good stuff. Romans 8, 4, he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit so that the law might be fulfilled in us through Christ. See, this is number five. So that the law, this is what God did, so that the law might be fulfilled in us through Christ. As Christ fulfilled the law in us, we are not condemned. Now we live with the Spirit indwelling in us. And this is, why, this is important because the Trinitarian nature of this conversation is incredible. It's powerful. Paul did not use the word Trinity, but he surely saw it. God, Christ, Spirit, together as one working for our salvation. Now, Paul's about to contrast sarx and pneuma, flesh and spirit. Sarx is not just our physical flesh, but it's our sinful flesh, our sinful nature, and our sinful outlook and worldview. Spirit is just the opposite. And so in Romans 8, 5, he says this, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. This is the contrast. Since sin can't control us, we must have given that control to something else, and that something else is the Spirit. That is our North Star. This is a restatement of what he just said in verse 4, but he wants you to get it. He wants you to understand that you're no longer bound to sin. You have bound yourself to something else, and that something else is the Spirit, and that Spirit has power. That Spirit changes things. That Holy Spirit that we live with every single day. And you know what? Adventists, just, can we just acknowledge this? We're not super Holy Spirit people. Like, we love God and creation. We're a fan of God and creation. That's our, that's, he's our guy because he gave us Sabbath. So we're like, thank you for that one, right? And let, we can own it. It's okay. We can own it. If you're not Seventh-day Adventist, you're like, what are you talking about? Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's just for us. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about other things that are for you. Um, but, but if like, like we love God because he set it up in creation, we think that's great. We think that's awesome. Jesus, pretty good. We're fan. Like the, the cross is great. The spirit, we're like, well, we like him. Like, we, we think he's part of it. We're not really sure what he does, right? We've never been like, you know, we've never been like, like, you know, we're certainly not charismatic. We're not even really dramatic. We're, we're just, we're just cool. Like, we're just equal. Like, I love it when somebody comes into Crosswalk for the first time. Because, like, the music starts and people stand up. And they're like, what? What do we, what do we do? They're like accosted by the fact that they'll stand in church and not just when we tell you, like you might just actually do it yourself. Um, which, which, listen, that's okay. That's okay. That's who we are. Like we can be kind of understated, kind of, you know, relaxed. But, but at some point in the life of a Christian and certainly in the life of a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, at some point you got to recognize there's power 
Now, at some point, you've got to recognize that God still does things, that God still moves, that God still indwells within us, and that that actually get, it transforms us, it changes us, it makes us into different people with different outlooks and different ideas and different thoughts and, and a different way of processing even this thing that we call sin. Like, it's, it's good. And we have to acknowledge that God is powerful, not just when he created the world, but in what he's creating every single day in you. And he's doing that through the Holy Spirit, right? Romans 8, 6. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and to peace. And this is the transformation. What are you binding yourself to? No longer the law of sin and death, but you are, you are binding yourself to the Holy Spirit that leads to life and to peace. This is your worldview changing. This is the renewing of the mind as, Romans, as Paul speaks about in Romans 12 and John speaks about in chapter three in his conversation with Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus is like, what? Born again, man, you gotta think about this differently. Nicodemus is like, I have no idea what you're saying. Jesus is like, all right, I get it. Romans 8, 7, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It did, it never did obey God's law and it never will because it didn't understand what God's law was. It thought God's law was a bunch of rules. It thought God's laws had like hash marks by it to make sure you checked it off to make sure you were okay. That's not God's law. What is the fulfillment of God's law? It's pretty clear. It's fulfilled by love. Luke 10, 27, the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law of God. This is the fulfillment of the law of God by doing these things. See, sinful nature goes, oh, it's a list. I can do that. Sinful nature is wrong on two ends. It's not a list. It's a relationship. Number two, you can't do it. You never did. You never did. Romans 8, 8, that's why those who are still under control of their sinful nature can never please God. The sinful nature, while at the same time flaunting God's law, even changes it to a list so it makes you think you can keep God's law. And it doesn't understand God's law at all because how could sin understand love? How could a sinful nature understand what a free gift of love really is? Because a sinful nature is always looking for something in return, and love doesn't ask for that. Love doesn't ask for that. But our sinful nature gets caught up in what it thinks the law is, and it misunderstands. Romans 8, 9, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature, controlled by the Spirit. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. This word that He uses, living in, the word is tabernacled. He's creating a home in you. It's a dwelling place. This is perichoretic language. You've heard me say that word before. It's Trinitarian language. It is the divine dance that God does between himself and between us as well. It's a mutual indwelling God in us. It is an abiding. It's a willingness to make a home inside you. But the, there was something on that last part, right? That last part where he said, and remember that those who do not have the spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And some of us go, oh, well, do I, 
Do I have Christ living in me? What does that mean? What does it mean to have Christ live in you? It's a fair question. It's a fair question. Because, I mean, I mean, there's a text in there that says, you know, even those that, you know, have called on the name of Christ are not actually saved. So what does that mean, right? It means this. It means that Christ is the word on your lips. It means that we are laser focused on Jesus as he is the message and the messenger. He is the savior. And I've made this argument before and it bears repeating. If you are talking about Jesus, it's because the Holy Spirit prompted you to talk about Jesus. And if you are talking about Jesus, you are talking about God because God was pleased to have his fullness rest in Jesus. Every conversation about Jesus is a Trinitarian conversation. Every conversation about Jesus encapsulates who God is. Every single one. So if you have Christ in you, you're talking about Christ a little bit. Some of us have hobbies that we're really crazy about, aren't we? Some of us, like some of us, we know, uh, we always make fun of vegans, right? But a vegan's going to let you know they're a vegan quickly. You put something in front of them, they're like... Is there any... Everything I can't eat in there? And you're like, yes, everything you can't eat is always in everything I put in front of you. Right? What do you focus on? If you have a laser focus on Christ, he will be the words on your lips. I love the way Luke 6.45 says that a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. And this is the part I love. What you say flows from what is in your heart. What do you find yourself talking about? Who do you find yourself talking about? What is the word on your lips? What is the overflow of your heart that makes your mouth speak? To have Christ in you, it means that we stop asking what would Jesus do and instead begin asking what is Jesus doing in you? That's different. Let's move it away from behavior and let's move it into relationship. Not just what would Jesus do in any given situation, but what is Jesus doing in you in every situation? What is he doing inside your heart? How is he changing you and transforming you? If you don't know what it is that God transforms you into, Galatians 5.22 tells it. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. These are the things that result from Christ living in you. It doesn't mean you're happy all the time. It's okay. You don't have to be happy all the time. But there has to be something underlying. That foundation of who you are changes. That foundation of who you are becomes something different. Number three, it means that we are becoming a blessing to others. You cannot have Christ in your heart and not be seeking to bless others with that gift. If you are keeping it for yourself, it's because you're hoarding the grace that God has. And God is not a fan of hoarders, right? He wouldn't let them keep manna for an extra day. Why do you think he wants that grace to stay in your heart and not be given to other people? 2 Corinthians 9, 8, 9, and 10 says it this way, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. 
By the way, this is not prosperity gospel because of the point of this. Keep going. Um, as the scriptures say, they share freely. They give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Verse 10, for God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and bread to eat. In that same way, he'll provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. If your resources are being increased, it is because God wants you to be more generous, not less. We don't hoard the blessings that God has given us. If you do, you're selfish, and that is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. Verse 11 says, yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. If you're enriched, it's so that you might be more generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank, not you, God, because they understand where the gifts come from. This is Christ living in you. Romans 8:10, and Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. Life equals justification. So Paul recognizes the dual reality of our Christian life, right? Our head is in heaven, but our feet are on the ground. But he also knows that the life we lead is a spirit-driven life, a pneuma-driven life. And that pneuma has power. It has the ability to transform who you are. Verse 11, and this is the one we stop on. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. See, we've talked about resurrection life, right? We've talked about it. We've talked about what it looks like. So what is resurrection life? What is resurrection life to you? I believe it's the power to overcome. It's the power to overcome obstacles that we don't think are able to be overcome. My daughter's dyslexic, and she doesn't mind me telling you that. And she struggles with things. And we were watching an HBO special on dyslexia, and Richard Branson came out. And he's deeply dyslexic. And he's done all right. He's done all right for himself. Um, he owns an island. That's good. A whole island. <laughs> How, do you buy? How do you buy an island? That's what I want to know. I've never researched it because it would be small. <laughs> but he says, you know, there is, there is a blessing to dyslexia because, because your perspective changes. You're not so linear that when you come up to an obstacle, all you can see is it in front of you. He said, because you're dyslexic, you think in 360 degrees, and so you figure out a way to get around that obstacle. Do you think your perspective is the same as God's? Think about an obstacle in your life. Do you think God's looking at it the same way you are? You think that he can't get around it? You think there's a rock too big in your path that God can't figure out a way for you to get around it? Your obstacles don't look the same for God. He's given you the power to overcome. You have to just lean on that power. You have to accept the fact that the Holy Spirit has power in your life to overcome the obstacles and to transform who you are. And in that power to overcome is a power to witness. Resurrection life means that you witness differently because you are no longer witnessing to sin and death, but you are witnessing to life and peace that is given through the Holy Spirit that came through the cross and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit's been given it to give it to you specifically. It is the power to witness. It is also the power to forgive. And that's important because we carry too much baggage when we can't forgive. And we have to carry other people's baggage when they can't forgive us. We need to be a community of forgiving, Holy Spirit forgiving, right? That lets it go, that walks away from it. And by the way, when you forgive, you have gratitude and you live differently. 
you live differently because you allow that forgiveness to well up in your heart, right? You allow that forgiveness to permeate who you are. It comes from Christ, but it has to go through us. This is what it means to live a resurrection life, friends. It means to live a life that's not stuck anymore because the same power that resurrected Christ from the grave lives in you. It lives in you. And don't be confused. That's not, that, that doesn't mean that, that somehow it's making you powerful, but it is a, the power of God is expressed through you. It is not something we can manipulate. It is not something that we can change, friends. That's magic. That's something else. What we have is the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives and transform those around us through unequivocal love, grace and mercy and forgiveness. And this resurrection life is available to you every single day. We have to continually be reminded to let go of our sinful nature, to let go of our past, to let go of that baggage and live into the new reality of the Holy Spirit and his power in our lives. Now, we're only 11 chapters into Roman 8. Now, I'm getting all fired up. You guys are relaxed. I'm fired up. <laughs> it just gets better and better because Paul is ramping up to the apex of his argument, which is that nothing's going to separate us. I'll let you in on a secret. Nothing's going to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's it. But he had to make this long argument. He had to start all the way back in Romans 1, and he had to walk us through it. He had to help us understand what sin was and help us understand that all of sin had fallen short of the glory of God. And he had to help us understand that even he struggles with some of this at times too. And he has to understand, he has to get you to the point where you understand that the only answer to all the problems, the only answer to, to the frustration, the only answer to what is constantly bearing down on us is Jesus Christ, him crucified, him resurrected, and the Holy Spirit life that we've been given after that. Because if you don't understand it, you never get out of the race. You never get out of the hamster wheel of sin. You never feel like you can overcome. But with the power of Christ and the gifting of the Holy Spirit, things change. And that's the life he wants you to lead. Because he doesn't want you to be frustrated. He doesn't want you to be exhausted. He doesn't want you to be tired of the sin and that, that sin that you carry. He wants you to live differently than that. He wants you to live free and gracious and with gratitude and growing towards a greater experience of love for him and to others. This is what he's called us to. And this is what Paul wants you to understand because you can't live life the other way. You won't stay. But this way, it propels you beyond this life into forever, into eternity, because that's what he does. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, your grace is not only sufficient, but it's overwhelming. It's, it's beyond what we have asked for and what we need. Lord, may your grace be constantly expressed in our lives. May you again and again and again discover us so that we might discover you. We ask these things in your holy name, the name of Jesus. Amen.